All right, I know some of you guys saw that last week when you're here, but I wasn't here, so I wanted to see it again, um, and so that was great. It was a great weekend, uh, fall Sunday, kicking off our grand opening of our playground. Our playground's being used through the week, as well as the basketball hoops, and um, so that's exactly what we want. We want people to feel comfortable that they can come on our campus, on our property, <clears throat> and hopefully that'll kind of make them used to doing it, and then when they're thinking about, man, I need to find out more about God they'd be more comfortable coming here and, and being a part of this. And appreciate uh, that unexpected. That was a surprise. Uh, I normally can find these things out, but that was a surprise. Um, so I appreciate the appreciation. I know Jason does as well. And I actually had here this morning, I just want to make sure, uh, just to thank all of our volunteers. Uh, I want to make sure people know that we see them, we appreciate them, that we couldn't do what we do around here without people being faithful to God and obeying Him and serving our church family. And uh, so uh, those who do music, again, love having Josiah and Alona here. A lot of the video work that we're doing, Alona is doing. Um, and so that's awesome. And we appreciate them being here and doing a great job with that. And our tech ministry, our custodial teams, we have people who team up and come here during the week uh, and clean our building for us from our church. And so uh, I'm a custodian guy. That's my background, buildings and maintenance. And and uh, so uh, we may just have a time where we call the cust- those who are doing the custodial work so we can all give them a hug because they got to work with me. I'm always walking around looking. I'm, I'm, a, I'm terrible when it comes up. But they do a great job keeping the place looking great. Uh, Grace Kids, you know, we don't just sit there and have people watching your kids. They're actually giving them God's Word and uh, training them and helping them know who God is. Our impact team, making sure people feel welcome, they have what they need when they come in, and not too welcome. You know, we don't like, we don't want to jump on people when they come to church. We want, hey, you know, we're all cool about this. Hey, thanks for coming. Good to see you. You know, fist bump, that kind of thing. Our property here, uh, ministry, for those who don't know, prayer and care. We have members of our church who commit to pray for everybody who attends our church, members and regular attenders. And, um, and so we have a men's team and a women's team, and <clears throat> um, it's just really neat. Uh, to see what God's doing, and appreciate those who are who are serving uh, Christ and serving His church here at Grace Point. All right. Well, like I said, you, thanks. I appreciate the appreciation, the gifts, and all kinds of stuff. But I am not giving you a short sermon this morning. We have too much to cover. Uh, we are finishing out the life of David. We're going to cover the last, and actually, we're going to we're going to put him in the ground today. All right. We're killing him off. I'm not killing him. He just dies. But uh, God calls him a man after his own heart, and so, which is an awesome thing. I mean, wouldn't you love it if you could hear from God, wow, you're a, a man or a woman after my own heart. That would be a, an awesome thing to hear from God. And here's the cool thing. You can. You can be sure that God could say of you, that person, you, me, are a person after God's own heart. That only takes for us to receive his offer of forgiveness for our sins, because that's our sins that causes us to not be right with God. And so God the Son, who we know as Jesus Christ, he came to earth to do that, to take God's judgment on himself, the judgment we should have, and when we believe that, we say, God, I believe that that's true, and so I'm trusting you when you say that, and I ask you to forgive me my sins. God forgives us of our sins, and then he puts God the Holy Spirit in our lives. Now we have a heart for God, because we have God the Holy Spirit in our lives. And that we're not perfect, 
We don't do everything perfect. We should be getting better and better and doing things more and more the way God wants us to. But like David, we won't be perfect in everything we do. But having that relationship with God allows us then to be able to just, hey, confess that. I messed up, God. Please forgive me. I sinned. And that relationship stays there. It's just we need to kind of get that intimacy back with him, if you want to put it that way. And so you can have that. And we'll talk a little bit more about that later on. But we know that uh, David dies when he's 70 years old. And if you didn't know that, you know it now. Um, The events that we're going to be talking about today uh, are happening probably in his late 50s and into his 60s. And even though God, uh, or David has seen God do some incredible stuff, again, we've been talking about it for eight weeks, probably should have been a longer series, but uh, we've talked about some of the great things that, that God has done in and through David, and David has seen him do that. And, um, but like us, he struggles to be consistent, uh, consistently obeying God and doing what God wants him to do. And then you add to that, just to the stress and the strain of his life, the things that he has gone through. You know, you can obey God and do what God wants, but it still kind of takes the wind out of you sometimes. It takes you, makes you physically tired, maybe, or emotionally tired. And so David's getting on in his, his life, and people didn't live much beyond 70 back then. And so he, he's getting on with his life, and things are taking a toll on him, and he's getting tired, and he's not fully focused on doing life God's way. Actually, his life kind of ends as a, as a thud. You know, it's not a real exciting end. Um, but the decisions he makes today are actually going to not only impact his family, but it spills over into the nation of Israel as well. We've been answering the question, how does a person um, who has a heart for God, how do they handle the, the ups and downs of life? We've been learning from David things that we should do, uh, and the things that we shouldn't do when it comes to how do we do that. And so we're, we've got this biblical truth that we're going to look at today as we, as we look at the difficulties, the uncertainties, the ups and downs of life. How should we who want to have a heart for God, how should we respond? And so a person with a heart for God will live as God commands and trust him as they face the uncertainties of life. The exact opposite of what David does today. So we're going to learn to respond positively by David's negative um, response here. He didn't quite do this correctly. We're going to start in 2 Samuel chapter 13. It's page 329, if you're using the Bible there, in the seats. Uh, We are going through chapter 13 through chapter 24, and then we're jumping into 1 Kings, the next book, and looking at chapters 1 and 2. Calm down. I'm not reading all of that. I'm I'm going to try it as best I can tell you the story, intersperse some verses from that to help move things along. So just pray for me that I can uh, get us through this. It's quite a bit of information. So like all of us, and like I've said, David was self-absorbed, and we can be self-absorbed. In other words, he wants what he wants. He wants to do what he wants despite what God says. And we, we know that. We are in that situation oftentimes in our lives. And in the events that we look at today, this is going to show itself in, number one, being apathetic to the commands of God. And he's going to show himself to be self-reliant as he looks at his future uh, and the things that are going on in his life. So, um, again, he's, he's going to, I just want to make sure we stay, we stay focused here. David's apathy towards God's commands. So we're going to look at first and then his self-reliance. 
So uh, before we get to the verse, though, just want to talk about real quickly what David, the, the command specifically that David's going to be apathetic towards. God has told all fathers, including David, and he did this all the way back in Deuteronomy, and, and for us today we can also look in Ephesians. Uh, we'll be talking about that in our new series, uh, Call Me Crazy, because we're going to look at what society says about men, women, marriage, family, and society, and what God says about us. So we're going to kind of be looking at these things uh, in our next series. But God has said, hey, um, fathers, it's your responsibility to take the lead in spiritually developing and growing your children, disciplining them, training them, letting them know what's right. And so David has this responsibility for his kids. Yeah, he's king. And yes, he's got multiple wives, which God does not want him to do. And yes, he has multiple children from those multiple wives, which God does not want him to do. But he still has a responsibility to pour into those children what God says about what's right and wrong. Now, he doesn't have a whole big moral um, standing um, in front of them, but he can still point them to God and have a responsibility to do what God says. As king, he has a responsibility to uphold the law. If someone breaks the law, including his children, i.e. our government today, then they're supposed to make sure that the children, even if it's his children, uh, pay the penalty for breaking the law, which is what happens today. Let's go ahead and uh, get rolling. Now, if, it, uh, if this is your first time with us or if you've forgotten, um, the white letters are from the Bible, the orange, yellow, whatever color that is, letters, those are me. Uh, I put that in. When I'm reading the Bible, this is kind of what I do because it helps me stay focused on the Bible. And I've heard some, from some people, that, hey, I really appreciate when you do that. And so I continue to do that. Sometimes it gets a little bit too many, uh, but hopefully this doesn't mess you up and hopefully it helps you stick with it. If not, I apologize. Now, it was after this, talking about 2 Samuel, so Solomon was born in uh, 2 Samuel 12, and there was a defeat of Rabbah, a, a town, a city that went up against David. It was after this that Absalom, the son of David, and it was by Makkah, Makkah, um, the third oldest, sorry, I can't help myself, whenever I see that, I think it's a bird. Um, so his third oldest son, Absalom, had a beautiful sister, interesting, he doesn't say David had a beautiful daughter, but anyways, had a beautiful sister whose name was Tamar, also by the same mom. And Amnon, the son of David, loved her. So Amnon is actually David's oldest, David's oldest son by Ahinoam. He's the half-brother of Absalom and Tamar. And the, the author is letting us know that he loved her. Now, like I put up there, more like lusted after her, right? Because that's isn't right. Everyone gets that? This isn't right. This is not... This shouldn't be happening. Okay. Amnon was so frustrated. There's a struggle inside of him. Man, I'd like to be with her, but I know I shouldn't be with her. And I'd like to be with her, but I can't seem to get with her. And so he's frustrated inside because of his sister Tamar that he made himself ill. He was lovesick or lust sick more than that, for she was a virgin. Now, when he say this, this is what it means. She was of marriageable age, but until back then they used to, they used to pick out you know, your spouse. And so they didn't date back then. They didn't kind of go off and do the thing. Uh, a parent would get with another set of parents and be, hey, my son would be good for your daughter. And like, hey, your son would be good for my daughter. You know, and so then they would arrange the marriage. And so up until that point, that woman of marriageable age is to be in her father's household and he is to care for her. Eventually when she's married, then it's the husband's responsibility. But until then, he's supposed to care for her. He's supposed to protect her. Uh, and men, 
are supposed to stay away from her until she is betrothed, engaged to somebody. All right? So, um, for she was a virgin, and it seemed hard to Amnon. It was impossible for him to get with her. Plus, he shouldn't because it's his, he's a half-brother. Anyways, to do anything. So, so far, this is good. He can't act out on what he wants to do. But Amnon had a friend. That's actually his first cousin, whose name was Jonadab and the son of Shemaiah, uh, David's brother. And Jonadab was a very shrewd man, which means this is not going to go well. Jonadab has a plan. So he says to Amnon, here's the deal. By the way, these are grown men. We're not talking like six-year-olds. It's a grown man. So Jonadab says, hey, Amnon, act sick. Okay? And then when your dad comes to see you, which is kind of nice for David to go check on his son to make sure he's okay, then say, Daddy, <laughs> I'm sick. Could you send Tamar to take care of me? Now, what should David do? David whose daughter is not betrothed to anybody, who should not be with in a man's presence, should say, that's what you have servants for. They can make up your little chicken broth soup and they can feed it to you. But he doesn't do that. He goes and sends Tamar to Amnon. She gets to Amnon's place and he's like, I'm too weak to get out of bed. Would you come here and feed me? And so she does. Now he's got her inches away from her. And he goes off and he rapes her. His half-sister. I don't it's bad for anything, but this is his half-sister. It's a mess. And it's going to get worse before it gets better. Tamar's in shock. She doesn't know what to do. She doesn't leave. She doesn't run out. She doesn't know what to do. She's saying, hey, you need to make this right. This, you, you've just ruined me. I am a ruined woman. I have no future now because of what you've done to me. You need to make this right. What he does, he takes his servants, tells, hey, get this, this woman out of here, and he tosses her out into the streets. She's, she's tore up and... Her clothing is all tore up. Absalom, not David, takes Tamar into his home. His family will take care of her. His family will help her heal and somehow get through this. Do you know what David does? The Bible says he gets very angry. But he doesn't do anything. As a father, he should be pulling Tamar Back into his house, he should be helping her heal, helping her work through what has just happened to her. He should be helping her get her reputation back. He's the one who put her in that situation, but he does nothing. As king, he should have taken Amnon and arrested him and judged him however they judged rapists back then, probably kill him or have capital punishment because this is rightful according to law that this would happen but he doesn't do that either 
since he doesn't do that, Absalom, he decides he's going to do something about it. So he waits two years. We'll find out that Absalom is a very patient man. Okay, So he waits two years. He doesn't want Amnon to, to connect what he's about to do to what happened to Tamar. And so he says, hey, uh, after two years, he's like, hey, I'm going to have a big party at my house. I want everybody in the family to come. David's like, hey, I'm too busy. Got things to do. As a, you know, I'm running a nation here. You know, all kinds of stuff. Can't come. But Amnon's like, yeah, I'll be there. So they get Amnon there. Everyone's partying. They're eating. They're drinking. And they're getting fat and sassy. And then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, Absalom tells his servants, kill Amnon. And so they do what they do back then with their blades and they take his life. The rest of the family and the servants, they scatter. They run home. Absalom, he flees to his uh, grandfather, uh, King uh, Telmai, who's in Geshur. Now, David has not shown any interest in fulfilling his responsibility as a dad or as a king. But Absalom's not going to take any chances, so he runs and he hides at his grandfather's places. And what do you think David does? Nothing. He doesn't go down there, doesn't grab him, doesn't charge him with murder. He doesn't go down there as a father to talk some sense into his son. Nothing happens. After three years, David, it says, comes to term with with Amnon's death, and he lets Absalom return to Jerusalem, but not to the palace. He's not allowed. David does not want to see his face around the palace. David hasn't forgiven Absalom, but he also hasn't arrested him. You know, it's, it's weird. He's got his son in Jerusalem. He should do something to him, but he's not doing anything. After two years, David removes the band, the ban, and Absalom was allowed to come to the palace. And this, this time where they reunite and there's hugs and kisses and, you know, reunited and it feels so good. You know, so it's all beautiful, warm and, and fuzzy. The family's back together. They're all hugging and kissing. And it's a wonderful situation. Or not. Because of David's inability to be a, a godly father and a godly king, the relationship with him and Absalom has been ruined. It's destroyed. What David doesn't know is Absalom has not come in peace. He's come with a plan. He's come with a plan where he is going to try to, to work things out. He, he's sick and tired of the fact that uh, he didn't do anything about Amnon. He, he allowed his uh, daughter to be raped. And, and, you know, it's just all the stuff that David's been doing, he's sick and tired of it. He is done with what David is doing and how David is operating. So he's going to initiate a plan where he can get the people to like him, to want him as king. So for four years, he enacts this plan. So four years, he does the following thing here. Now it came about after this that Absalom provided for himself a chariot and horses and 50 men as runners before him. This is, this is how kings moved around town. I Thought about maybe trying to, you know, get some of you guys to actually be, you know, 50 of you. Uh, men or women, it's fine. Just run ahead of me, and, uh, and I'll be coming behind you. Oh, oh. Okay. Anyways, Absalom used to rise early and stand beside the way to the gate. Now, again, four years of doing this. And when any man had a suit to come to the king for judgment, Absalom would call to him and say, From what city are you? And he would say, Your servant is from one of the tribes of Israel. You know, coming from here and there. 
Then Absalom would say to him, See, your claims are good and right, but hmm, no man listens to you on the part of the, ki- of the king. In other words, oh, isn't it sad? David doesn't want to talk to you. He doesn't care about you. Well, they don't know that. He's intercepting them. He's telling them that. David's not necessarily doing that. But anyways, moreover, Absalom would say, Oh, that one would appoint me judge in the land. Then every man who has any suit or cause could come to me, and I would give him justice. I'm the one. And when a man came near to prostrate himself before him, which is what a commoner would do to the royalty, right? He would put out his hand and take hold of him and kiss him. Now, time out, because I know some of you are going, your junior high mind, <laughs> boys kissed. It's not the case. In the Middle East, it's a normal greeting. You can see it today if you watch the news and um, people of Middle Eastern descent, they'll come up and they'll you know, do the old cheek-to-cheek type of thing. Right? That's what he's doing. But it's more than that. They're coming to him. Oh, you're much better than I am, Mr. Royal Absalom. And he's like, no, no, no. We're buddies. We're on the same level. I care about you. I care about your concerns. Not like David, but I do. All right. Next. In this matter, Absalom dealt with all Israel who came to the king for judgment. So Absalom stole away the hearts of of the men of Israel. So his plan is working and has worked. And so confident that he's won the support of the people, he goes to step two of his coup. That rhymes. Step two of his coup. Good. I didn't think about that in a nine o'clock service. That was kind of fun. Anyways, so Absalom asks David, he goes, hey, listen, if it's okay with you, I want to go down to Hebron and I want to uh, have sacrifices to God. I want to worship God. I've made some vows to him when I was in Gesher. I want to follow through with those vows. Hey, God, if you ever let me get back to Jerusalem, uh, here's what I'll do. Kind of like when we're in trouble. You know, Lord, if you just do this, I'll do this. Well, that's what he did. And so he's, he's saying to David, I want to make good on those vows. He's actually using God to get what he wants, which I would never want to be in those shoes. Seems like a dangerous place to be, or sandals, as the case may be. But he says, I'm going to go down to Hebron, and I want to, do, to worship God down there. Now, why Hebron? Well, probably because <clears throat> when David first became king and became king of Judah, the southern portion of Israel, and his uh, headquarters, his capital, was Hebron. Well, then when he became king of all Israel, the northern as well as the southern half, he moved to Jerusalem. He made that his headquarters, his, um, his capital which angered the people in Hebron. Everybody wants their town to be the capital because that's where all, everything happens. So they haven't been happy about this. So he goes down there. That way, hopefully, they'll support him more than maybe they did um, before. So then this happens. <clears throat> but Absalom, again, instead of worshiping God, sent spies throughout all the tribes of Israel saying, as soon as you hear the sound of the trumpet, then you shall say, Absalom is king in Hebron. Then 200 men went with Absalom. I love this. The author wants us to know something here. That 200 men went with Absalom from Jerusalem, but they were invited, but they went innocently. They did not know anything. So that's kind of... So he didn't tell anybody. that this had, They were all thinking, hey, we could go to, down to Hebron with Absalom and hang out and worship God with him. And, but that's not what was happening. And Absalom sent for Ahithophel, uh, the Gilonite, David's counselor, from his city Gilah. Uh, while he was offering a sacrifice. So in other words, David's own people now are supporting Absalom. And the conspiracy was strong, for the people increased continually with Absalom. So David hears 
that Absalom has set himself up as king in Hebron. But, once again, he really doesn't do anything. Now, what could he do? He's the appointed king of Israel, appointed by God. And God has said, David, I will fight for you. I will be the one who brings you victory. David should have stayed in Jerusalem and said, bring it on. I've got God on my side. But he doesn't. He wimps out and he heads off and he hides up north of Jerusalem. On the way out of town, he gets Hushai, one of his uh, trusted counselors. He said, hey, you stay. And then when you hear things about what Absalom is doing, then you go ahead and give me information. With David gone, Absalom just simply walks into Jerusalem, but he's not satisfied to that, with that. He wants David dead. So Ahithophel, he offers, hey, listen, I'll take 12,000 guys. We'll go up, we'll get David, we'll kill him, and all the people who are with him, we'll bring him back. This is, this is where they need to be, serving you. Hushai, he says, well, let's, no, let's do this. Um, Absalom, you get the entire army. Call up the entire army and have them go up and get David. Now, back then, they didn't have a standing army. Um, when there was battle, and everybody would join, and they would go off and fight battle, and when the battle was over, they'd all go back to their fields or taking care of their sheep or whatever trade they had. So why would Hushai give that kind of advice to take the entire army up there? It doesn't sound good for David. This is why. Then Absalom and all the men of Israel said, the counsel of Hushai, the archite, is better uh, than the counsel of Ahithophel. For the Lord had ordained to thwart the good, and put that in parentheses, the good counsel of Ahithophel, so that the Lord might bring calamity on Absalom. So here's one of those times where God's going to use, and he's directing Hushai to give this information to Absalom, and he's going to use man's decision, and he's going to work it towards his end. He can always use good decisions and our bad decisions to work out his plan. And so he's going to do that by having the entire army come up there because he wants the entire army to see that, no, David is my man. He is king. Again, David's not been faithful, but God's going to be faithful to his promise that he's going to keep David as king and he's going to provide for him. So, Hushai gets word to David, says, hey, Absalom's on his way. Absalom, once the army's assembled, he heads up to Mahaniam, which is the city where David has gone to to hide, and this is what takes place. Then David numbered the people who were with him and set over them commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds. David sent the people out, one-third under the command of Joab, one-third under the command of Abishai, the son of Zerah, uh, Joab's brother, and one-third under the command of Ittai, the Gittite. And the king said to the people, I myself will surely go out with you. Actually, they're like, I'll go with you, boys. You know, and they're like, yeah, listen, you're a little bit too old, too feeble, you're going to slow us down. You stay back. They convince him. He stays back. The king charged Joab and Abishai and Ittai, saying, deal gently for my sake with the young man Absalom. No, we don't deal gently with Absalom. Absalom has just killed, murdered your son. As father, you need to deal with it. As king, you need to deal with it. We don't deal gently. We discipline. And in this case, probably capital punishment because he knows he killed him. And all the people heard when the king charged all the commanders concerning Absalom. 
Then the people went out into the field against Israel, and the battle took place in the forest of Ephraim. The people of Israel were defeated there before the servants of David, and the slaughter there that day was great, 20,000 men. For the battle there was spread over the whole countryside, and the forest devoured more people that day than the sword devoured. It, this forest is known for being really dense, and it's hard to get through, and that kind of stuff, and the battle was happening inside of there. Now Absalom happened to meet the servants of David. For Absalom was riding his, on his mule, and the mule went under the thick branches of a great oak, and his head caught fast in the oak. Now we have, didn't talk about this before, but he's a very handsome man, as the Bible tells us. It actually says he's beautiful. But anyways, he's a handsome man, and he's got a lot of hair. He's just one of these guys, flowing, you know, kind of like I used to have. Uh, beautiful hair. So he's got that. And so as he's going through... Um, his head, his hair gets caught. So he's left hanging by his hair between heaven and earth while the mule that was under him kept going. If it wasn't so sad, it'd be funny. Um, when a certain man saw it, he told Joab, and said, Behold, I saw Absalom hanging in an oak. Then Joab said to the man who had told him, Now behold, you saw him. Why then did you not strike him there to the ground? I would have given you ten pieces of silver and a belt. <laughs> I don't, I don't know what's exciting about the belt. Maybe it's like, you know, karate, that they have a certain color belt. I don't know. But he was excited about the belt. The man said to Joab, even if I should receive a thousand pieces of silver in my hand, I would not put out my hand against the king's son. For in our hearing, the king charges you in Abishai and Ittai, saying, protect for me the young man, uh, Epsilon. Then Joab said, I will not waste time here with you. So he took three spears in his hand and thrust them through the heart of Absalom while he was yet alive in the midst of the oak. And ten young men who carried Joab's armor gathered around and struck Absalom and killed him. Then Joab blew the trumpet, we've won. And the people returned from pursuing Israel, for Joab restrained the people. So he calls them back. They were exhausted. I'm exhausted from telling the story. So as you might guess, David, when he hears this news, he's devastated. He's emotionally spent. His two sons, his oldest, who should have become king, has been killed by the third oldest. The third oldest has been killed by one of his loyal uh, people. We don't, we don't know anything about his second son, Daniel. Uh, we know his name, but we don't know anything about him, so he probably died when he was younger. But he's got this, these two sons who should have been there with him and for him have died, and so he's emotionally distraught. But imagine, imagine if David previously had done what God called him to do. First, all the way back when the kids were growing up. Imagine if he had truly spent time with them and poured into them spiritually and helped them understand who God was. And I'm not saying they would have been perfect, but I'm sure it wouldn't have gotten to where God. But even if it wasn't that, imagine if he had just taken Amnon. You need front and center. You have done something against your sister that you should never have done. And because of that, you will give me your life. That would have put an end to it. So God would have wanted him to do, and it would have put an end to it, but it didn't. Finally, Joab convinces David, hey, listen, the people are starting to talk, and they think that, that you don't care, that they sacrificed their lives for you to have your kingdom back, so you need to get your act together. So David agrees with that, and he returns to Jerusalem, and as the story goes, he, he unifies the splintered nation and brings it back together. As we go through chapters 20 and 23, I'm just going to really quickly go through that. 
The author tells us about uh, some skirmishes that took place within the kingdom. David put down, there's a song of deliverance that David wrote, one of his awesome psalms. Uh, his official last words as king are uh, put there. Uh, the list of his mighty men are in there, which is kind of an interesting read to see what some of these guys were able to do with God's help. But as the author closes out Second Samuel, he relates one more act of disobedience. And it's motivated by uh, a sense of self-reliance. David was beginning to forget that it was God who gave him the peace of his nation and the wealth of his nation. He was thinking more was about him than it was about God. And that will tragically impact his entire nation. So he orders a census of the military. So here's how that goes. Now again, the anger of the Lord burned against Israel, and it, God's anger, incited David against them to say, go number Israel and Judah. Now the word go there is in the active voice, which means that he made a choice of his own will. God hadn't commanded him to do that. He was just going to do that on his own. Now this is a difficult passage, and so I'm going to try to explain it to you, and hope it, I hope um, it makes sense. But there's two things going on here. First of all, God's angry with Israel. We don't, we're not told why, but he's angry. Um, but as we read the story, since David is um, becoming self-reliant, there's a good chance that Israel is also becoming self-reliant. They're not doing life the way God wants them to do it. They're doing it the way they think they should do it. And so God sees his nation is starting to slip away from uh, what they should be doing or how they should be doing life. And then David, he is becoming self-reliant. We know that for sure because he's taking account of the military. Now, why is this wrong? For two reasons. One is God has commanded that only he can take a census. So all the way back in Exodus, back with Moses, thousands of years before this, he says to Moses, I command you, take a census. Israel is God's nation. Israel is not Moses' nation or David's nation, so it's not for them to do what they do with the nation. It's for God to do what he wants to do with the nation. So David, and I go, some of you are like, well, that's kind of a picky thing. If you understand something, any sin against God is an evil thing because God is God, all right? And so even something that may you think, eh, it's kind of a simple thing. No, it's, it's important that we understand that God is God and he does what he does. Sometimes we understand, sometimes we don't, but we trust him. So he, he disobeys God, and then secondly, it shows David that, or it shows us that David's actually trusting his military over, uh, over God. He, he, doesn't, he doesn't need to know how big his army is because God's going to be fighting for them. Yeah, the guys will go out there, but God's going to be empowering them and working out the plan. See, when David was younger, and we've talked about so many times, he would um, they'd be in a situation, a bad situation, and he would go to God and say, hey, God, what do you want me to do? And God would say, hey, here's what you need to do. And then he would enact that plan. And he would receive a victory in that because he was doing what God wants him to do. But now he's making the plans. He's making sure his army is big enough, strong enough, that he can trust them if they have to go to battle. So what God's doing, he's going to use David's disobedient choice to reveal his and Israel's sin, this self-reliance, the sin of self-reliance. Now, it's an interesting move um, because we don't necessarily always think this way. We think discipline is bad. We don't like the pain. Uh, we'd rather not have it. And it's unfair when it happens to us. But actually, discipline is a really important part of our lives. Because what discipline does is that it, it enacts a certain amount of pain, 
not abuse, but in a certain amount of pain. And in that pain, we come to understand, oh, I'm wrong. In David was wrong in being self-reliant. Israel was wrong in being self-reliant so that we turn back to God and continue doing life the way God wants us to do. Because God's pain that he's going to put on us, whether it's through our uh, consequences of our decisions or some other outside source, however he's going to do it, that discipline, that pain will be far less than if we continue down our road the way we want to go. In fact, the Bible says in Romans 8, 6 that the mind set on the flesh, the mind says, I, Harold, have control of myself, is death. It's destruction. We'll destroy our lives. We'll destroy our relationships. We'll destroy ourselves, you know, things around us. But the mindset of the spirit, the, the mind that's under God's control and wants to do life God's way is life and peace. We, we actually breathe life into our lives and we have growth in our lives. So he wants David and Israel, he wants us to know that, hey, listen, don't trust what you think you should do. Don't trust your power. Don't trust anybody else what they think and what their power is. Trust me. And he's going to use discipline to get them back, to confess their sin and get back with him. So despite Joab's objection, uh, Joab's like, no, no, we can't do that. We shouldn't do that. Dave's like, no, we're going to do that. And so they go out and they get a census. They bring the numbers back. And when they get back, Dave is like, oh, you ever been there? Oh, I messed up again. You know, we're, we're going along and all of a sudden we realize, oh, I just sinned. Well, that's what he did. He just realizes, oh my word, I just, I just sinned again. So he's convicted. He seeks God's forgiveness. But sometimes God gives us, for, you know, he always gives us forgiveness, but sometimes he allows the consequences or he brings the discipline anyways because the lesson is so important. And so here he says, hey, David, I'll give you three options for discipline, which is kind of nice, you know. Um, and so David's like, I don't even want to choose. I'm going to leave this up to you, God. You decide for us what, how you want to discipline us. And so God says, I'm going to send a three-day plague upon all of Israel. And up to three days. We know that, we'll find out here, that at the end, he ends it early. But in the process, 70,000 Israelites were killed by that plague. David, seeing that and seeing that the plague is actually moving towards Jerusalem, he goes, he buys uh, some property, uh, and he actually builds an altar, and he begins sacrificing and asking God, forgive us, forgive us. The Bible is very, um, uh, tells us over and over and over again, the shedding of blood, that only in the shedding of blood is there forgiveness of sin. And all of the Old Testament is all about, hey, you know, if you sacrifice an animal, you shed the blood, God will forgive you. But it was actually pointing towards uh, Jesus Christ. God the Son becomes man, and he sheds his blood on the cross for us. And so as the plague was coming towards Jerusalem, David jumps in front of it, in a sense, sacrifices these animals. God forgives, and he relents. He's, he ends the plague. It doesn't reach Jerusalem. And the same for us, that as we move towards heaven, and if we don't do anything about it, that our, our sin will end up being judged by God. But Jesus died on the cross for us. He took our judgment for us. And so we can go to him, and that blood, in a spiritual sense, covers us. God forgives us. And now he'll withhold his wrath on us. He already put it on Jesus for us. The book after Second Samuel is First Kings, which it begins with David on his deathbed, and there's a coup attempt by his other son Adonijah. Um, 
And then David, he puts down that coup by uh, putting Solomon in place. And Solomon becomes the next king of Israel. He gives them some words, some challenging words. And I'm not going to talk about them today because I think I might be using them for our next message. And so I don't want to step on my own toes. But we find out that David then, once Solomon's in place, David dies. He's 70 years old. He's reigned over Israel for 40 years. And again, our, our, the desire for us as we've gone through this is that to understand how should we do life what God wants us to. If we have a heart for God, what things should we do and what things shouldn't we do? And so as we close out, I just want to uh, throw out two questions for you to consider, for you to contemplate, to pray about, and ask God to help you understand where you're at and what you need to do. The first one is where are you apathetic when it comes to God's commands? So maybe it's the command that God says, hey, study and know my word. Come to know me by being in my word. Let me teach you about who I am. So maybe you're apathetic about that and you're not spending time. It says 70% of uh, regular churchgoers seldom or never read their Bible during the week. They're apathetic. And so maybe that's where you're at. Maybe you're apathetic about training and developing your kids spiritually, kind of like what David was. You're like, ah, well, somebody else would do that. You know, we send our kids off to school. They train them at school. Well, I'm going to send my kids off to church, and hopefully they can fix them. I'm going to let somebody else do that. But listen, God commands parents, starting with the husband, the father, to train their children. They, we, as fathers, are the ones who are supposed to be building into our kids spiritually. Do you know why so many fathers don't? Because they're not spending time with God and his word. And so they don't know that's a command, or they don't care it's a command, but they also don't know, even if they wanted to, they wouldn't know what to tell our kids because they don't know who God is. Maybe it's connecting with your church family or, or serving your church family. Again, all these are commands. Maybe it's allowing a pet sin, an ongoing sin to continue in your life. Maybe it's that you're not sharing Christ with others as God commands us to do. I'm going to try to make this short. Do you know that there's a there's a, a correlation between the command to share Christ and issue one. I know a lot of people are worked up about issue one, and rightfully so. Uh, we're being asked to go to the um, polling booths on, on Tuesday to vote as to whether to make it a um, constitutional amendment that people, women, can have abortions all the way up through birth, and that people are worked up about that, especially Christians as rightfully we should, because God says, thou shalt not murder. And so as Christians, we should be saying, no, that's not right. We, we should be trying to get as few abortions and maybe even shut it down completely as much as possible, because God commands that we would do that. But how does that relate to sharing our gospel? Sharing the gospel? Two ways. One is this. Because Christians have a, for whatever reason, have a difficult time sharing the gospel. It said 95% of believers have not sat with another person as they've received Christ. 95%. Because of that, people are not placing their faith in Christ. Because when a person truly places their faith in Christ, they care about life. And so we're, we are where we're at because Christians are not doing what God's called them to do, and that is to share the gospel with people. We wouldn't be here, at least not to this extent. The second way is this. 100%, we need to be for life. We need to be praying and asking God, Lord, change the way things are moving in this direction and, and allow us to get to a point where we don't have abortions. By the way, there are abortions going on today. In fact, Ohio has a, has a higher percentage than the states around us because those states are coming to Ohio to have abortions. You can still have an abortion. But, sadly, 
But think about it. Let's say God gives us the ability and we have fewer and fewer abortions. That means more and more kids are coming into this world. Awesome, right? You know what happens when a person is born into this world? They eventually die. It might be surprising for some of you, but you eventually die. What happens if we don't share the gospel with those children? They die and they spend eternity in, in hell. So we can, we can push for life, and let's push for life, and let's vote no on issue one. Let's make sure we have more and more people being born. Life. But Christians, you better be sharing the gospel with those children that are being born. Because eternal life now is at stake. One last thing. I, I know we have women who have been a part of our church who have had abortions. I know we've, we've got men in our church whose wives or girlfriends have had abortions. We've got grandparents who have had their daughter, granddaughter have abortions. And so I, I want, as best I can, to convey the fact that that matters. And Jesus Christ cares about that. And that it's only by coming into relationship with Jesus Christ that that woman can have the healing that God wants her to have, to have the forgiveness that God wants to give her, to have the sense of purpose, actually even having purpose, that you can use your story for other people, for God's glory and for their safety. The abortion situation, the, the abortion process is, is painful and it's emotionally painful. And people who have had them, they deal with depression and anxiety. And so we need to have our arms around them and letting them know who Jesus Christ is and what he's done for them. But there's also the father and there's also the parents and grandparents and other people. They need to know that too. I was talking with somebody, a father this week who's had a situation where previous... His girlfriend at the time, she had an abortion. And he was pushing for it. And the weight that that now as a believer, that, that he carries with that. The abortion industry is about money. They don't care. And we need to show them that Christ cares. I said enough. I'll move on. Secondly, where are you demonstrating self-reliance rather than complete reliance on God? Maybe it's your job, maybe it's your finances, defeating sin. Maybe it's healing your marriage and family. You're doing it yourself. You're going to do it yourself. I'm going to make sure I get it. Or maybe it's your entrance into heaven. A lot of people say, hey, I got this. God, thanks, but I got this. The problem is God's like, you don't got it. You can't do it. Only God can get you into heaven. Only God can make you right with him. You can't be self-reliant on that. Jesus Christ, God his son, did the only thing that could have been done. And that is, as God and man, taken your eternal punishment on him. He took mine on him. And he wants you to turn to him and just say, God, forgive me of my sins. And I believe what you're saying, that Jesus took my punishment for me. Forgive me of my sin. I'm trusting in you. Take my life. And God will forgive your sins. He'll place his Holy Spirit in you. And now you have a heart for God, and now you live life as one who does. Let's go ahead and stand. Close in prayer.